change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hi, and welcome to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Etienne. Today, we have the pleasure of having Brett back on the show. We did an episode with him um, about a year ago um, and learned a lot about silver pasture. And we really wanted to have him back a second time because he has so much more knowledge to share with us. And this week, we were able to really focus on uh, planting a silver pasture system, uh, you know, which trees to plant, where to plant them. And we're able to cover lots of practical details from the design to the management of establishing new silver pasture systems. We were also able to go into living barns, which is a really smart way of using uh, some coniferous plantations to shelter animals during the winter. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Hi, Brett, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. Thank you so much for coming back for a second conversation and a second round. Thank you, ATM. I was thinking we could um, kick uh, this episode off with a brief introduction of what you do and who you are for people who haven't, um, you know, listened to you in the previous episode, and so they can get a sense of uh, of your context. I'm Brett Chedzoy. I work as a forester for Cornell Cooperative Extension in upstate New York. I cover a 11 county region of the state helping woodland owners and land management professionals be better stewards of their woods. I also work part-time in agricultural issues, particularly grazing management. And agroforestry, though, is my unofficial passion. I've been working in education around civil pasturing, but also other agroforestry systems such as maple syrup production for my 15 years in extension. And that's the day job. Our family owns and operates ranching operations in the Watkins Glen, New York area, and also in central Argentina in the Sierra Mountains. My wife, Maria, is from central Argentina. We bought our ranch there in 1994 and have been developing it into a Civil pasture ranch ever since. And the same is true of our family farm in New York. It was a dairy farm until the mid 80s. And when we settled back here in the early 2000s, we tried to take what we were doing in Argentina and apply it here. And we raised our three children here on the farm. They're all off into college and adulthood now. But it's civil pasturing has been a great fit for our farm in both corners of the world. And here in New York, though, it's helped us in many ways keep our farm more profitable and enjoyable. So look forward to talking with you about that. Yeah, well, you know, there's so much to talk about. And last time we we did a pretty good uh, first shot at it. And we were able to cover a lot of uh, a bit of a bigger picture of silver pasture, uh, a lot of the different interactions 
And uh, it was a really fascinating introduction to silver pasture. And, and um, we, we also covered a bit how to, to establish, um, you know, convert a, a wood to, to a silver pasture system. But this time I would like us to go a bit more into some detail about that and specifically on your experience on those two farms, understanding uh, what choices you made and, you know, what worked and what didn't and what you learned from all of that. So to get us started, um, maybe you can tell us um, which silver pasture systems did you establish uh, on both farms? So here in New York, we live in the middle of the forest and our farm is was, well, was and still is predominantly covered with trees, but that's true of much of the Northeastern United States. So here we were using primarily the existing trees to use as the base for creating productive silvo pastures, what we call wood silvo pastures. And we also, though, had been planting trees on our farm since 1988. So we've used, since taken those plantations and develop them into plantation silvo pastures. Now, on the ranch in Argentina, the the Argentines like to quip that God gave them great soil and rainfall and climate for growing trees, but then forgot to put the trees there. So when I started working there in the early 1990s with these large ranching operations, many of whom were owned and being managed by people with forestry backgrounds, they saw it as their mission to put the trees there. And that's what we've been doing on our ranch there as well. Since uh, 1998 was the first year we planted trees on our ranch in Argentina, several years after we bought it. Uh, So there it's entirely plantation civil pasture where we're starting from scratch. So we have uh, the grasslands and we have good rainfall. This is a, uh, in central Argentina, it's about a 40 inch or a thousand millimeter a year rainfall climate. But then, so that, that is very conducive to, to growing a lot of different types of trees there. Although we found that some species work better than others and we can talk more specifically about that later on. Perfect. Thanks for uh, recapping um, a bit of those different systems. And I think it would be good to, to start with um, what you call uh, uh, plantation uh, silver pasture systems and, and bringing trees then into pasture. Um, maybe starting with um, what you've been doing in the US, you could tell us a bit about the function that you um, that these trees have and why you felt the need to bring them into pastures in the first place. I feel that Trees on both of our ranches contribute significantly in a number of ways, but just to talk about in the context of our farm here in New York, I feel that the trees obviously are a timber crop, but they also provide shade for our grazing livestock, which is very important throughout the grazing season here. If you look on any sunny day where it's... um, more than mildly warm, the animals are actively seeking out shade. So in the silvo pastures, we can create extensive dispersed shade for them versus 
just a field edge or a couple shade trees. It certainly helps enhance habitat for a lot of the wildlife that's important to us here on the farm. We love the way our civil pastures look for their aesthetic quality. And then I think um, finally, but equally important, the keeping the trees in these more natural grazing systems, these civil pastures helps improve the health of the soil and also gives us other so-called ecosystem services. And how has this um, then, you know, uh, translated into the design of these systems? Uh, what trees did you select to both accomplish, you know, shelter, but also with the timber um, value, as you just mentioned? Here in New York, we rely primarily on natural re regeneration. Trees are what want to just come into the landscape on their own. When we stop mowing fields or mowing the lawn or planting a garden, and we've planted tens of thousands of trees here on the farm in New York over the past 30-some years, <clears throat> particularly, though, where we felt something was missing In Argentina, that number is more in the hundreds of thousands of trees. In both cases, though, both New York and Argentina, we chose trees that we felt would not just survive, but, but thrive and contribute to the goals of our grazing farms. We weren't successful in all cases in terms of picking trees that would survive over time, but over the past 30-some years, we've made a lot of progress. And I'd like to add, though, in case I forget to do so later on, I keep saying we. I'm obviously talking about Maria, my wife, and our our family, um, our children, Ian, Claire, and Joe. But particularly in Argentina, where we're relying on um, some some great people to make all this happen, I, I have to credit a longtime forester friend, Esteban Zupan, who has been the caretaker of our ranch for uh, since we left there in the early 2000s. And, and if it wasn't for Esteban and a lot of other great people that have helped us over the years, Antonio, Vicente, Juan, um, it just wouldn't have happened because we can only really be farming in one place at one time. Just coming back to this um, design of silver pasture systems, um, Could you give us the name of, of some of the trees then that you've um, established um, in the U.S. and in Argentina? Here on the farm in New York, we've planted a mix of both coniferous species, pines, firs, larch, spruce, and hardwood species. Two of our favorites have been black walnut, Juglans nigra, and black locust, Robinia pseudoacacia. And Black locust, which is a tree, my understanding is that's widely planted in parts of Europe, I think in many ways is the perfect tree for agroforestry systems, particularly civil pasture systems, because it, it checks all the boxes. It's a fast-growing tree. It's relatively easy and inexpensive to establish. It's a nitrogen-fixing tree. It has uh, foliage that leaves out late in the spring, so it allows a lot of sunlight to come through and promote early spring ephemeral growth in our pastures. But I think most importantly, it's a tree that can be 
harvested at a relatively small size or young age and be used for valuable products. Being a grazing farm, one of our biggest expenses is building fences and maintaining fences, and that uh, requires a lot of fence posts. And about 80% of the cost of a fence is the cost of the post and installing that post. So over time, we've tried to utilize living trees more as our living fence posts. And we can go back and talk about that more if you're interested. It's not, it's not a simple matter of just attaching your fence or fence insulators directly to a living tree. That, that wouldn't work. But where we have to harvest trees, turn them into fence posts, locusts is really our only truly durable nat- uh, native species. So we found these locusts. And when we were planting these locusts over 30 years ago, I should add that at that time, we were not, even though it was a family dairy farm, we really weren't grazing livestock. So there wasn't a lot of importance to us to be planting trees for civil pastures or for producing fence posts. But uh, when we really started to turn the farm into this grazing operation in the early 2000s, we realized that we could either go by pressure-treated pine posts from somewhere halfway across the United States, or we could be harvesting the black locust trees that we had planted 15 and 20 years earlier and use those for our fence posts. And and it became uh, a big savings for us to be able to use these homegrown posts. So I really like locusts for for a lot of reasons, but not least of which is it's it's rather unique for us and it's a tree that we can be harvesting and utilizing in 15 to 20 years versus 50 or more years, which is more typical of the tree species that we grow here for saw timber products. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I was I was wondering uh, in terms of layout, uh, if sometimes uh, there was a clash between the function of shade and uh, trying to produce decent timber. Uh, because, you know, for example, you might put trees out for shade and animals might spend a lot of time underneath and uh, create a lot of compaction or vice versa. But it seems that what you're saying is that you've managed to find a tree like acacia that's actually very hardy and can take uh, like the presence of animals pretty well and, and is, you know, pretty tough. So if we're, if we're doing, if we're setting up our civil pastures correctly and manage the, managing them correctly, the livestock impact to those trees should be pretty minimal. And I think we talked about this pretty extensively last year in our first episode of how we go about doing intensive rotational grazing and allowing long rest and recovery periods between each time that they pass through a given paddock or a portion of our entire pasture system. And that's really, I think, the most important way that we reduce the impacts on trees, particularly young trees, is we just never let the animals stay there long enough to where they become bored and restless and start to rub on the trees or spend too much time loafing around under the trees. They they go in, they put their heads down, they graze uh, the portion of the pasture that we want them to graze. They may take some nibbles off of 
any low-lying tree limbs or shrubs that are there as well. It's really interesting and enjoyable to watch grazing animals because they 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 know, and, and I'm sure it's a subconscious process, but they know what they need to seek out in terms of food selection. So in our civil pastures, we have a lot of plant diversity. We don't have just herbaceous plants like grasses and forbs. We have these woody plants and browse as well. And when we watch our animals move every day into a fresh paddock, they will often first walk over to any woody browse, nibble on that for maybe the first five to 10 minutes. And then they seem to get their fill of whatever it was they were subconsciously seeking out in that browse. And then they turn their attention to the what we think of as the the pasture, the grass plants. We're we're actually uh, preparing an episode with uh, Fred Provenza, who's been uh, writing on uh, nutritional intelligence of um, livestock. So, you know, I'll have a few more answers for you in, in a few weeks, or you can just listen to the next episodes because that that's what we'll be exploring. I'm really pleased to hear that because Fred, I have found to be one of the most knowledgeable and most interesting people that can talk so eloquently about that process of how animals behave and how they select and seek out this food source versus that food source. Hmm. So I, that that is definitely a podcast episode I will be listening to. <laughs> And um, so if, if I'm if, to recap a bit and to make sure I understood, you have these acacias that were actually planted before you, you were even thinking of silver pasture. And then are there any other trees that you added since then uh, a bit with a more like conscious design of the animal's needs, for example, in mind? So to give you a, just a really broad overview of our planting history on our farm in New York, in the past 33 years, we've planted at least 33 different tree species at, at a significant scale. Now, that doesn't count all the other oddball species that we plant more just for fun, uh, what we would think of as like a specimen tree. But here's what we've learned the hard way of those three dozen or so tree species that we've planted, uh, we've lost probably almost two thirds of those trees over time to mostly pest issues that we didn't anticipate when we were planting those trees. So many of the tree species that we've planted were to complement and build on the several dozen tree species that grow on our farm naturally. So we have very diverse, mostly deciduous forests here of oak and maple and cherry and walnut and basswood, I believe you call it uh, uh, lime or tilo and parts of Europe, um, hickories, just uh, lots and lots of different tree species. What we lack are more the conifer species and then we don't have enough of some of these other hardwood trees that we value, such as black locust, even though black locust is somewhat a naturally occurring tree here in parts of New York. So 
we tried to pick trees. <clears throat> we weren't planting the same things that already grew here, but planting additional trees. And what we found is that when you plant trees that don't naturally occur here, many of them end up being susceptible to pests that eventually catch up to them in these new locations. To give you some examples, we've planted a lot of Douglas fir, which is a Western U.S. species, and but Douglas fir suffers from a foliar fungal disease called rhabdocline needle cast. So we had beautiful looking Doug fir for the first 15 years we planted it here. And then for the past 15 years, we've all but lost it to this fungal disease. And, and the same has happened to some of our pine species. It's happened to some of our spruce species. And of course, now we have pests that are attacking some of the hardwood species too. One of the more serious current pest is called the emerald ash borer, which causes essentially 100% mortality in all species of ash or Fraxinus. And but to understand um, kind of your thought process and your design process, uh, you started with an open field or pasture, and then, um, you know, where did you place trees uh, and how did you decide, for example, spacings and, and, and um, lines, etc. Early on, we followed the models that had been used traditionally, and that was plantation forestry at fairly high densities per acre. We were planting trees on as little as a two by two meter spacing, and that worked okay for the conifers like the pines and the firs and the larch because those seedlings were relatively inexpensive and they also didn't require as much tender loving care to get them established with hardwoods hardwoods are a little more difficult to get established in the first few years because they're more sensitive to herbaceous competition they also seem to be magnets for a variety of wildlife that want to come and either eat the foliage or the roots or the bark off of those young trees. So, and, and they're also typically seedlings that are more expensive. So we, uh, we've done different designs with different groups or mixes of trees in what I would do today. And we haven't done extensive tree planting here on the farm for uh, not since the first few years we moved back. And today what we find is we're planting rows of trees along our internal fences more for shade, but we're also using species like black locusts that have the ability to spread naturally on their own over time once once you have uh, a, a row of bigger trees. What I would do today is probably plant fewer trees per acre, add more species to the mix, to hedge against those risks that I just talked about with unforeseen pest issues. But first and foremost, I always would be thinking about ease of maintenance. And people that have not planted trees before, I think, underestimate how much work goes into it after that first step of putting trees in the ground. So to me, that's just the very starting point. And I want to always try to design any tree planting in a way that I can go in there and maintain it 
for at least several years. And in some cases, you may be able to get trees to a point where you can leave them largely onto their own in just a few years. And in other cases, it may take 10 years or more for those trees to get to the point where you can then give them less attention and less care. But in situations where we're going to have to think about managing the, the weeds or the grass that's growing in between the trees, we need to think about, all right, straight rows would work better to be able to mow between the rows than groups of trees or something where the trees aren't uh, in nice straight patterns. The other thing we need to think about is the probability that we may have to irrigate or water those trees. And if it's fairly a fairly small planting in rows, we might be able to set up drip irrigation. And if not, then we have to think about how can we haul water out to those trees, which honestly may not be even possible in areas that are too steep or too rocky or have other barriers and obstacles. So it's interesting because in a sense, um, most of the planting um, of trees occurred before you started really focusing on grazing then. It, it more happened in the sense that first you, you had plantations of wood for timber, and then you were thinking, how can I run through my animals? Here in New York, most of our tree planting happened prior to becoming grazers. But everything that we've planted since we started raising livestock, we're, we're planting in ways that we can maintain it and protect it. And that's why planting single rows adjacent to our existing internal subdivision fences, what we call our paddock fences, that has worked well because we already have a fence on one side of the row of trees. And then it's pretty easy to set up a temporary fence on the other side to exclude animals at least temporarily from those young trees. And if we set it up properly, so most of our internal fencing is just a single hot wire. And keep in mind that we raise cattle. We used to raise a lot of sheep and goats. Uh, with cattle, a single hot wire of fencing will usually be effective in keeping the animals in or out of where you want them. With sheep and goats, a single hot wire probably is not. So what we've tried to do where we're planting single rows of trees along our internal fences is keep that wire just high enough above the ground, usually 50 to 60 centimeters, and just far out enough from the trees that the cows can't quite reach over and heavily browse the young trees or rub on the trunks and possibly girdle or damage the bark of those young trees. But to the extent that the cows can reach under those single wires and graze at least part of the grass, that not only helps maintain the fence, but it also reduces the amount of vegetation that we have growing around those young trees and we still have to do some supplemental maintenance, whether it's mowing or mulching, or in some cases we've had to spray because it's not just the part of the 
grass and other weeds that's growing above the ground that are affecting those young trees. It's the roots below the ground that are competing with those young trees as well. Uh, it's quite interesting that you you had this um, uh, progression and you know that you were planting trees for different reasons in different phases. And I'm interested to see the different uh, rationales. If you were to continue planting trees, um, would you still include some in the middle of some paddocks or in the end, you know, do you really recommend circling around the paddocks following those uh, existing fences, for example? I think to, to do it all over again, Etienne, I would probably try to get the trees planted and established before we even started grazing it. And that's just inadvertently how it worked out on much of the farm here in New York. Now in Argentina, we've always been planting concurrently with the grazing and but there we're planting fast growing mostly fast growing pine species and we find that we can start to graze those young plantations within just two to three years of planting what's really important to keep in mind though is that the way we would graze in and amongst young trees is probably quite different than the way we would graze in and amongst older, larger trees. So when I talk about starting to graze in a young plantation or a young plantation civil pasture, whether it's in two years or five years or 10 years, that doesn't mean it's the same same duration of grazing or the same timing of when the animals are in there as we would in a, like a mature wood civil pasture. Because the larger trees are largely resistant to things like animals that want to scratch themselves on the tree or uh, nibble on the foliage. Uh, doesn't matter if they nibble on the foliage of low-hanging branches, that doesn't affect a mature tree to any significant extent, but it would if it was a young tree that was maybe just a couple meters tall and one hungry animal comes over and strips half the foliage off that tree, that's going to put quite a bit of stress on that young tree. Um, I think the bigger vulnerability there, though, is that the animals would come over and rub on the trees and so we try not to ever have animals on either ranch in areas of young trees during times of the grazing season where they're being stressed by external parasites, particularly horn flies, uh, a biting fly that just drives the animals crazy during the hot summer months. And for them, for, for the cattle at those times of the year, a young tree looks like the ideal scratching post because it's flexible and it usually has low-hanging limbs. So we've, <clears throat> we've lost some trees in the past because we've perhaps put them in there for a little too long or at not quite the right time. But that's not to say that we can't graze young plantation civil pastures at all. We just need to think about doing it either before the trees start to leaf out in the case of hardwoods, or we need to think about moving the animals through there more quickly and 
doing it at a time where they have really lush grass and the animals will just focus on grazing like we call it flash grazing they'll they'll take off that young succulent growth but then we move them out of there perhaps just a few hours later before they turn their attention to the young trees but i'm i'm wondering um because clearly it's a bit different to you know uh plant out a timber plantation and then graze your animals through it or to uh plant trees around a grazing system with the aims of, you know, increasing its productivity or animal welfare, etc. And I'm wondering now that you you have both experiences, you've been both uh, planting for timber production and also then you've had grazing. Um, what what would you do today, or how might those two different types of planting differ in terms of spacing, for example? The needs of hardwood trees or deciduous trees, like nut trees, for example, are quite different than those of coniferous trees. So many coniferous species like pines, larch fir, spruce, those trees tend to grow in a, we call it a pyramidical form. So just think of the classic pine tree. It has a typically a nice straight stem. The branches grow out to form a nice well-shaped crown. So, but if you, if you can picture a pine tree, the way we draw little stick diagrams of pine trees, it looks like a little pyramid. Whereas if you think about how a hardwood tree grows, it grows like a wine glass. So the, the crown grows outwards and it may still be a nice straight trunk, but hardwoods typically can out softwoods because they just get their heads up above the softwoods more quickly and they spread their crowns out over the top of these little slender pointed shaped softwoods. Therefore, if we're going to plant a mix to establish civil pastures, we probably need to think about a design that segregates the hardwoods, the, the broad-crowned hardwoods from the pointy-crowned softwoods for at least enough time that the softwoods don't get quickly overtopped, like putting an umbrella over the top of the pine tree. And most conifer species need pretty much full sunlight. There are some exceptions of conifers that have significant shade tolerance, but many are sun lovers. And Hardwoods, most species that we value in civil pasture systems are also sun lovers, not least of which is black locusts, but they they have the ability to send out a branch up through that hole and maybe grow more off to the side where they, they, they see sunlight and, and grow away from competing neighbor trees. Um, conifers don't do that well. They typically grow straight up and if something gets over the top of them it'll really slow down the growth and possibly uh, cause them to perish over time because they're not getting enough sunlight for photosynthesis to sustain themselves so i like to try to when we're planting trees we're usually thinking about either hardwood mixes or softwood mixes and that combining them together. Now I can think of many cases where it may make sense to combine them together, but 
that just adds one more layer of complexity to the design and the ongoing maintenance for those trees. And uh, in Argentina, we plant mostly conifers, particularly pines, because they seem to be best adapted to the conditions of our ranch. These are soils that they're fertile soils, but they're relatively low in organic matter. They're uh, granite-based soils that are very drought-prone, and the pines tend to tolerate those periodically droughty conditions better than hardwoods. That's not to say that we don't have good sites within our ranch there to plant hardwoods, but pines are what thrive. Here in New York, it's really just the opposite. The The conifers grow and can grow great, quite well, but the hardwoods just grow so much better. So we're taking better advantage of the site quality here in New York to plant hardwoods. That said, we've planted many softwood mixes over the years. And when we were planting those, we planted them for reasons that had more to do with the site quality than thinking about using those in the future silvopastures. pastures. Today, many of our conifer plantations today, we I think we generally think of them as silvopastures, pastures, but we more specifically think of them as our living barns. <clears throat> and a, a, a way of another way of thinking of a living barn would be like a uh, wooded shelter area for livestock during extreme weather, particularly winter weather. And that's one thing that sets us apart here in New York. (coughs) Sorry. And perhaps uh, where some of your other audience is tuning in from like Canada is that we have, we have months of very cold winter weather and the cold is not really the issue for livestock. It's it's the cold when it's combined with uh, prolonged snowstorms. And most of our grazing livestock in civil pasture areas are ruminant animals. If a ruminant can keep its belly full of good quality feed, whether it's stockpiled pasture or hay in the winter, it can usually generate all the heat it needs to keep itself warm. But if you have a winter storm or blizzard where you might have a day or two or sometimes even more of prolonged precipitation, snow and sleet combined with cold and wind chill, allowing them to get into those conifer plantations to reduce the wind chill and get their faces out of that driving snow really helps them uh, stay more comfortable. And and it's much like civil pastures help grazing animals stay more comfortable during periods of high temperature as well. And so the difference, the basic difference between how I would see our conifer plantation civil pastures as living barns from our other plantation civil pastures that are more hardwood mixes is that we don't focus as much on growing forage under our plantation, uh, under our living barns. Uh, What we're really managing them for is 
we, we still have to manage them, meaning we still have to thin trees out to promote good growth of the best trees. But we're trying to preserve a little bit more tree density in there because it's that tree density that's giving us the biggest benefit. And by having uh, on our farm here in New York, we have six different areas totaling about 20, a little over 20 acres of these living barns. And that is pretty much eliminated the need to have other structures like pole barns or what we call coverall structures to house our animals during these extreme winter events. And any of those structures would be very expensive, not only to build, but maintain. Yeah, I know that a bit too well because I'm in a mountainous region where everyone has big uh big barns and big buildings. So I'll be thinking of the living barns. And I want us to go into some detail on living barns and, and, and what it means in practice. But before that, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to understand, uh, still on this idea of design, um, have you found a good uh, balance between, you know, planting for good quality timber, but still allowing enough light for forage? Because I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know so much about timber production, but we often see sometimes fairly dense plantations to, you know, encourage uh, straight long trunks. And you might have all the foresters parameters uh, to try and make the best production possible. But that n might not completely align with including animals in the mix and, you know, letting sunlight come in and having a herbaceous strata. So Obviously, you're managing to combine both. Uh, is that something obvious to you, or did it require some adjustments between the needs of the grazing animals and the need of producing high-quality timber? I don't think we've had to really adjust the way we manage our plantations for those two different objectives. That is, plantations just for timber production versus plantations for civil pasturing. I think we probably discussed this in our first episode last year, but to make the point again, Etienne, the way that we would manage any woods, be it a artificially established woods, and that is a plantation where we plant the trees versus a naturally occurring woods, there's the uh, stocking level of trees or the density of trees that we would want, be it for timber production or for good forage production, is really quite similar. And I'm not going to get into the kind of the technical forestry explanation of that, but one thing that does make a plantation for timber a little bit different than a plantation for civil pasturing is that we need to control the competition between our better trees that are growing in that upper canopy level. But in civil pastures, we also need to think about thinning anything that's below that upper canopy right down to the ground level. So if we have a layer of invasive shrubs growing under our big trees, our nice trees, we need to make additional investments to remove that 
layer of interfering invasive shrubs because it's that shrub layer that's intercepting that sunlight, which is the critical ingredient to grow forage in our civil pasture understory. But last time we mentioned, we, we talked a lot about taking a already existing uh, forest or plantation and then thinning that out to allow light for forages. But in, in, in this scenario where you're starting from, let's, let's say, pasture, Uh, supposedly, if you had plant the trees that are too far apart, that would affect the shape that they take and not incentivize them to grow tall and produce nice straight trunks. So you're having to start with a density that's much higher than what allows animals to come in, or how does that work? You're right. So I understand what you're asking. Uh, the first thing we have to think about when we design our tree planting project is well, I think there's several important things. I already talked about the importance of being able to maintain it, but we also have to think about cost because to the extent that we can minimize the investment we're making up front, the more positive the financial outlook is going to look off into the future. So one of the ways that we control the The upfront cost, of course, is to plant fewer trees. What does not work well is trying to cut corners. And if you know that trees are going to just need a certain level of care in those early critical years, then you can't say, well, okay, instead of spending $100 a hectare a year to maintain this, let's only spend $50. Because $50 might be the difference between most of the trees surviving and most of the trees dying or at least taking much longer to get established and start growing so that you can get in there and do things like graze your animals much earlier. So <clears throat> the number of trees per hectare, we're balancing several different important considerations there. We, we Every tree represents a, a cost, so we want to plant as few trees as possible to get the results that we want. Now, that depends on the type of trees we're planting and the design of those trees that we're planting. So to go back to that example of hardwoods versus softwoods, softwoods, depending on the species, they might do quite well at fairly open spacings because they're so shade intolerant that the limbs prune themselves off naturally. That's particularly the case with many of the pine species, whereas hardwoods, if you don't create enough shading and side competition, they'll grow as like big open lawn type trees or, or just require so much more investment in going in there and doing corrective pruning and pruning the lower limbs off. One of the ways that we can compensate that for that though is to plant uh, some rows tighter together and then maybe leave alleys in between with broader spacing. And one of the designs that I like, although I think there are many that would work well for civil pastures, is to plant a row of the, the trees that we really want to be there for the long term and then fairly tightly on both sides of that row of say the the uh, long-term trees is plant rows of trees that 
we can harvest more in the short term. And locust would be what black locust would be one of those examples where the, the black locust is going to probably grow a little faster than say the, the nut trees that we plant in the middle. And that locust is going to get up there and, and push those nut trees to grow taller and straighter, but we can go in there maybe after a couple decades and remove those rows of locust and utilize it for things like fence posts and then leave the nut trees to grow off into future decades. Hmm. So there's, yeah, and, and you could do the same thing by planting, say, conifers on both sides of your hardwoods. And then having this uh, kind of high density per line, you can space out your lines as much as you want and, and be very uh, flexible uh, in the amount of grazing or, you know, paddocks you leave in between them. So, yeah, it seems like quite a flexible design. So it, when we talk about this, also, ATN, it's important to note that sometimes, so you're, you keep using the example of trees that were growing for timber, uh, timber products. Most timber products seek to grow a tall, straight tree. Not all trees that we're planting on our farms or planting for civil pastures are necessarily be plant, being planted for growing timber products, particularly saw timber. So in the case of, say, like European or Asian chestnuts and hazelnuts and uh, fruit trees like apples, those those trees are not be growing are not being grown primarily for saw timber. So in fact, it's almost preferable to plant those trees so that they can grow broad, uh, broad spreading crowns and in, in those situations the the design or the initial planting density might be different than where we're trying to grow high quality saw timber and on your farm you you have planted quite a few of more nut or fruit trees then no on our farm mm. pretty much everything we've planted have been what we consider timber species okay and that said, if we ever find the time and money to do more extensive planting our farm, that's really where I'd like to focus next is to try to have more of these orchard type groves that are dual purpose silvo pastures. Uh, it does require a lot of knowledge and skill to grow proper, beautiful timber trees and, and get a, a good product out of them so let's say i'm a i'm a livestock farmer and you know i know mostly about cows and grazing but i do want to include some trees into my operation uh would you recommend that i stick to kind of black locust and and get a simple product out of it like posts would that be a safe bet for me or are there other trees that you think are reasonable for someone with limited skills and experience in terms of forestry to include with uh, animals the answer to that question, ATN, really depends on where you live in the world. So black locust is more of a northern climate species. It's, it seems to be very adaptable. So I've seen black locusts growing from subtropical regions all the way up into boreal regions where it can be very cold in the winter. But 
many tree species and there's keep in mind that there are literally dozens, maybe even hundreds of tree species worldwide that I think can be very, very useful in civil pasture systems. What we need to look for though, whenever possible is to try to start with native species and the reason I say that is not because I have anything against non-native species, but I'm <clears throat> basing that comment on the uh, lesson that I mentioned earlier of where we planted lots of different trees years ago on our farm and then found out eventually that pests from wherever those trees originated from eventually caught up with those trees and wiped them out. So uh, I think trees that have been growing in a given area for centuries, if not thousands of years, those are trees that probably have inherently lower risk of pest issues. There are some notable exceptions to that, such as the emerald ash borer. However, whenever you bring something new in and put it there, I have, I have really no problems with that from an ecological perspective, because I think nature eventually sorts it out what what belongs and what doesn't belong. If it doesn't belong, some plague or pest is going to take that organism out. Um, as long as you're not introducing something that becomes invasive in nature. And that's rarely the case with trees, at least in northern climates. Now, I know there's cases of invasive trees, that is, trees that become pests in warmer parts of the world where the trees can grow so fast that they just displace native trees. Here on our farm, though, I'm, I'm going to pick things that uh, are best suited for the site, but also complementary to our objectives. So locust has been one of those trees that has worked very well for us, but locust, even though it grows on our ranch in Argentina, it's not, I don't think, as well adapted to growing there as some other hardwood species. Oaks seem to do very well on our ranch in Argentina. But we also have native species there, such as mesquite. Is there any places on your farm where you would not put trees, you know? Because we often say, you know, we should put trees, where should we put trees? But Uh, when you have animals, for example, and uh, are there some some mistakes in including trees where they shouldn't be? I struggle to think of examples of where we wouldn't want to plant trees. Trees in a general sense, but there are some tree species, and I'll go back to using black locusts as, as a perfect example. Black locust is one of a handful of tree species that spreads through its root system. We call it a clonal species. And over time, it'll send up new shoots from the root system. So wherever you plant locusts today, you expect it to creep outwards over time. So another common example that I think many of much of your audience would be familiar with is poplar, uh, particularly what's known as uh, white poplar, Pop populus alba, I believe is the botanical name. 
that's another example of a tree species that is clonal in nature. So if you plant it too close to areas where you don't want trees, such as your gateways, your laneways, the public road, uh, the homestead, over time you've created a situation where you're going to be trying to fight back the encroachment of the trees. And is that an issue in pasture, for example, because... If you're grazing animals, there might be some areas where you want the, the black locusts to stay where you intended them to be. Um, or is the animal pressure enough to keep that under control? Are you having to come in and, and, uh, and cut that, those small black locusts to keep them in check? On our farm, we've made the mistake of planting black locusts too close to the power line right ways in the public road. And that's become a growing problem over the years because the locust wants to just keep encroaching under the power lines and into the road right away. And grazing alone won't usually keep that in check. Keep in mind that in civil pasture systems, we're usually doing, well, not usually, we should be doing intensive rotational grazing with long rest and recovery periods. And if you have a fast-growing species like white poplar or black locust, that two or three times during the grazing season where the animals may pass through that area and take a bite or two off the top of those young suckers or shoots that are coming up, that is probably not enough to <coughs> keep that tree from eventually outgrowing the browsing height of the livestock. And then a little problem turns into a bigger problem. What would you recommend then for, for making sure that doesn't happen? Let's say I'm putting a, a line of black locusts in the middle of my pasture to, to offer a bit of protection to my animals. Uh, is it to pass with a, some kind of um, cutting device once a year? Will that be sufficient then? One of my favorite sayings is, I guess a way of paraphrasing it would be prevent the problem before it happens. So if we know a particular tree species has characteristics such as suckering through the root system, then we shouldn't plant it adjacent to areas where we don't want that tree spreading into. Whereas other trees that don't sucker from the root system, it may be perfectly fine to plant them uptight to access areas and roads because the tree could possibly produce seedlings from seed over time, but it's, it's going to happen at such a slow rate that we can stay on top of that. Whereas if you think about the difference between young trees or regeneration from seed versus young trees from root, vigorous mature tree root systems, that's, that's like an order of magnitude difference in the uh, rate at which those trees grow and the ability to which they can spread outward. So I, I don't, um, I, I don't think we want to set ourselves up for situations where we may have to do unnecessary maintenance and prevention down the road. So, just understand what the characteristics are of the trees you're planting and species that may have that ability to encroach or invade into unwanted areas. Just 
don't don't plant them in those areas. Uh, I guess uh, <clears throat> one point I couldn't emphasize enough, Etienne, is that I think any tree planting, even if it's just for timber, but particularly for any agroforestry system and especially for civil pasturing, we want to we're going to have our preferred species, but I think we want to mix it up and add as many species to the mix as possible. Keeping in mind, don't plant species that are doomed to failure 10 years down the road when they get taken out by a well-known pest. I think it would be useful if we kind of took a practical step-by-step of uh, going from the moment where you plant a tree and going through the different uh, maintenance steps you have to go through, uh, you know, and when do you include animals again and for how long and maybe looking at some of the choices and also uh, successes and mistakes that you made in that process. So it all starts with having a good plan and that plan is only a little bit about the tree species and the design of the planting or the plantation. I think it's equally, if not more importantly, about how much can you afford to invest? Are you planting trees that are going to be compatible with what your vision or goals are for those trees? And are they trees that you can commit to taking care of? Because if it's uh, something like what we think of as the hardy pioneer species. So black locust would be a hardwood example of what I consider a pioneer species. These are trees that in nature you see are the first first to show up on a disturbed site and kind of pave the way for other tree species to then come in through that natural succession. So in nature, we often see things like aspen, locust, pines, birch, alders, all tree species that are able to become established in less than ideal conditions. And then over time, we might see oaks, maples, other nut trees. They they come in once these other early pioneer trees come in and um, have started to shade out the grass competition and created a little bit more shade and uh, cut down on the moisture losses of the soil a little bit more. And when we're planting trees into a farm field, however, uh, we want to think about, okay, um, first of all, am I putting the right tree in the right site? So don't plant a tree that needs very fertile, well-drained soils on a heavy clay-based soil that's seasonally wet. You're just, it's not that that tree might not survive or persist for years, but it's never going to reach its full potential there. And if we're really going to uh, achieve the benefits out of tree planting that we're seeking, then we need to plant trees that will perform well over time. regardless of what our objectives are, whether it's just shade and habitat or it's nut production or it's timber production or it's just, I want pretty long-lived trees out there. We want trees that are well-suited to that site and will grow well. And, and the bigger the bigger a tree becomes, the more 
limiting uh, a marginal site becomes to the health of that tree. That's why I say you can probably get almost anything growing there for the first decade or two, but will it really continue to grow and do well 50 years and 100 years down the road? So to, to go back to your question, so we, we want to start with a plan that is carefully thinking it all through and not just species and planting design, but are these trees um, going to give me the outcomes I'm looking for? And are they trees that I can take care of? So are they, they trees, are they trees that I can pretty much plant and walk away, which is what we do on our ranch in Argentina with pines, or are they trees that I may have to be out there maintaining them uh, several times each year through the first five or 10 years that I planted those trees. So that's, that's where it starts. And then obviously the, where it all really hits the pavement is where we go out, the trees show up. Uh, and by the way, part of that planning process is seeking out quality sources of trees. And that's easier said than done. I, I find it's um, di always been difficult it may be even more difficult today to go out and find really good sources of good quality trees. So there are many forest nurseries out there that might sell run-of-the-mill stuff. But if we're going to invest a tremendous amount of time and money into planting trees, plant the best quality trees that you can. Both quality in terms of how they were raised in the nursery. In other words, they come out of there with good root system and good stem mass and things that meaning they're, they're a healthy, vigorous seedling that's going to be able to overcome those stresses of being outplanted and start growing from day one versus some little wimpy seedling that's <clears throat> going to just sit there and barely stay alive for the first few years. But also think about the genetic quality. So in that, um, whether, again, your your goal is fruit production or nut production or uh, timber production, there are certainly, it's, it's not that all trees are created equal in that sense. So within any given tree species, there's potentially sources out there that will give you better better growth for timber or better nut production or better quality nuts or fruit. And it costs more to, to buy that improved stock. But when you pencil it out, it, it's usually um, very cost effective to spend that additional money on better genetics up front. So the trees show up, we get them in the ground. We It takes a lot of labor to do that. We need to make sure that when game day arrives, we've got our volunteer or paid workforce out there ready to get the trees in the ground in a timely fashion. And then once we get the trees in the ground, we, we can probably take a deep breath for a little bit. But if uh, we then need to be thinking almost immediately about, okay, what wants to come in? eat my little trees? Is it my livestock? Is it the uh, outbreak of some defoliating insect that's going to happen that spring? 
Is it the rodents that are out there living in these grassy pasture systems? Is it the other wildlife like deer? Deer would be one of the biggest barriers to planting any trees here in the northeastern U- U.S. Uh, an adult deer, a white-tailed deer, eats about 5,000 tree seedlings a day as part of its diet year-round here in New York. So a uh, young plantation of freshly planted trees that are chock full of nutrients right out of the forest nursery bed, that's like a delicacy for deer. And they can go in there at a very inopportune moment. That is just as these weak little seedlings are leafing out for the first time and overnight take a bite off the top of everything. And that may not kill those seedlings, but it certainly doesn't help them either. So protecting those young trees is really the next step. And then I think kind of the the final phase is being able to reduce the herbaceous plant competition around those trees for a few years as they're trying to get their small root systems established. Herbaceous plants, grasses in particular, are very effective at keeping woody plants from invading their turf. So we need to think about uh, either some sort of mechanical or chemical way of reducing that root competition around those young trees. And that also in turn often helps reduce the habitat for voles and moles and shrews and bunny rabbits and other critters that want to come in and girdle that succulent nutrient filled bark off that young tree seedling. And um, I'm I'm wondering on your farm, uh, just going back one step, what kind of uh, soil preparation do you do? Um, do you, yeah, d- dig individual holes? Do you prepare prepare lines? I'll answer that, but first I want to say that I've made every mistake imaginable over the years with planting trees, and I attribute a lot of that to thinking like a forester. So, where I live, forestry is highly reliant upon natural regeneration and we're we don't often plant trees here in New York in the northeastern U.S. because if we just do the right silvicultural treatments nature will plant the trees for us. Now I we talked a little bit at the beginning about why we may still choose to plant other trees just to put things there to either enrich the the mix of species or because we can plant trees that we find um, very useful like black locusts. If we're going to grow trees for fence posts, then locusts is the tree of choice and we don't have a lot of naturally occurring black locusts. But what I've learned the hard way is that to, to plant trees, I need to stop thinking as a forester where I'm expecting nature to do it for me. And I need to be thinking more like a very skilled horticulturalist where I'm going to put very intensive care into the, this, this horticultural crop and the success of any tree planting project, I think is directly proportional to the effort that goes into it, uh, both on the planning side 
that is carefully thinking through all the steps and making sure that you're able to meet the minimum requirements of those steps, but also making sure that you realize that putting the tree in the ground, that act of planting is just where the work really begins. So when I look at some of my neighboring farmer friends that are orchardists and vineyardists, I think that's really more of the model that we need to follow for planting any trees. And that isn't necessary in all parts of the world with all tree species, but it's much more, uh, it's much more of a commitment than I, I think many of us initially estimate that putting trees in the ground and mowing it for a couple of years may not cut it. So Mm. watering trees is sometimes going to be important. Uh, Controlling pest issues on the trees is going to be important. Controlling herbaceous competition around the young trees is going to be important. In Argentina, we have a prolonged fire season in the winter and protecting young trees from fire is a a big challenge for us. And there's probably no bigger threat to young trees than fire. And how do you, what can you do to protect trees from fire then in Argentina? We treat them as silvo pastures and graze cattle in them as early as we can because it's really a very symbiotic relationship where the trees over time benefit the cattle. They give them shade and shelter and also uh, help shift the pastures into more palatable and better quality forages over time because of that cooler moisture microclimate that the trees create. But the cattle in turn are essential for controlling fuel loads. And in the absence of grazing we're letting a lot of dry, dead plant material accumulate under those young trees. And it's just a matter of, it's not if, but when fire is going to hit us. And if we can control that fuel load through grazing, then we can usually make it through a fire without significant damage. Whereas if we were not grazing our plantations, I think we'd just have a ticking time bomb sitting there coming back to our um our planting methods um have you yeah always used the same soil prep uh has that is that a variable that's changed as well the way i would do it on our farm today is to try to auger the trees in versus planting them with a shovel or planting them with a tree planter a lot of the trees we planted In the past, we did with a tree planter, which makes a slit in the soil and you put, and it's, it's a, it's a method that's well suited for small bare root seedlings, but it doesn't work well for larger containerized seedlings. And I think that when we plant hardwoods, we need to be thinking more about containerized seedlings versus bare root seedlings because we want those trees. Yeah. And we're going to spend more on those larger containerized seedlings up front, but If we get higher survival and the trees become established much quicker, meaning less maintenance over time, it it probably more than paid for itself. To plant any type of a 
uh, seedling though that has a fairly well-developed root system, you have to make a pretty big hole. So I just want to jump in here because uh, we often hear that, you know, uh, bare root seedlings have a much better root structure because they're not root bound by pots. But for you, uh, basically avoiding the initial stress of being bare rooted and being potted still pays off. Like you're not worried of uh, the long-term effect of root bound. I think it has a lot to do with the production method here in the U.S. There's uh, what what they call like bottomless containers or bottomless pots. So it's an air root pruning method that seems to work well with many hardwood species. To answer that question, though, the first thing we have to recognize is that not all tree species are created equally. So some tree species, they, they can transplant quite well as bare root seedlings. Other species, they perform very poorly. They might survive, but they go into a, a planting shock phase where that tree. So what we want, our goal should always be besides survivability is to get that tree off and running as early as possible. And that's a combination of both what we plant in terms of like a small bare root seedling versus a containerized seedling and the planting method, but it's also a reflection of the early care that we put in to getting those trees, um, getting their roots in the ground and getting them uh, growing as, as quickly as possible, as early as possible. So that's why more and more, especially for the type of trees that we would be planting for our civil pastures today, which would be primarily hardwoods versus spruce and pine, and I'm talking about New York, not Argentina, I'm going to auger them in. So all the trees that we planted in recent years, we use an auger on one of our farm tractors. It's a heavy-duty auger with a pointed self-feeding tip. It's not nearly as productive as the tree planter that we were using 20 and 30 years ago, but I think it gives us better results. It also helps to an extent with the site preparation. The act of augering that hole in kind of destroys those herbaceous grass roots in close proximity to where those young tree roots are going to be, at least through part of the first growing season. I think that we need to think a little bit more, though, about especially some of the more delicate hardwoods where we would either then need to follow up and mulch heavily around the tree. Mulching can be a uh, double-edged sword because on one hand it helps suppress weed growth and traps in moisture, but it can also suck nutrients out of the ground if we're not using the properly composted wood chips. It can also create habitat for some rodents. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, mulching would be a more organic alternative to using herbicides or chemical controls to control the herbaceous competition. I personally don't like herbicides, not because I have any philosophical opposition to the herbicides, but herbicides, when you spray a patch of sod, that is a patch of dense grass, and you kill the grass in that spot, whatever's in that seed bank is going to 
quickly express itself and just probably be a bigger headache than what the grass was. So wherever we spray grass here with something like glyphosate, what we get back are very get back are very fast growing aggressive warm season weeds that that um, could be even worse than the grass for those so young trees. Is there any other options in terms of you have um, wood chips, uh, herbicides? Uh, is there some kind of mechanical tilling or? Mechanical, so you rototilling. You could scrape the sod in a strip, and and that might work fine in soils that are like loamy soils where you don't have a lot of rocks to contend with. The the sod stripping doesn't seem to work very well on our farm because we have too many large stones in our soil. It also then creates an uneven surface that is hard to mow around. So the first year it looks great because you have this strip that might be half a meter wide of where you've basically scalped the sod off and planted your trees into that. But by the second year where you have tall weeds and woody plants and grass and other things starting to encroach back around those trees, you've now created this spot that's hard to get the mower, uh, especially if you've left large stones laying on top of the soil surface. So, and rototilling would be similar in that it, it's, it's in essence the same effect as spraying where you've, you've removed what was suppressing the expression of the seed bank there. And what's worse is you've churned the soil up. So in that act of scarifying the soil, you temporarily remove that herbaceous competition, but what comes in after that could be much worse. Uh, that's why I like mulching probably the best, but we just need to make sure that we, um, in, in a common mistake I've seen with tree planting projects here is they plant the trees And then either they never quite get around to putting the mulch down or they go out and scramble to try to look for mulch, but they don't find mulch that's been composted adequately. So they're putting more or less fresh chips around the trees and that can rob a lot of the nitrogen out of the soil as the decay fungi try to break those fresh chips down and really jeopardize the growth of those young trees. Is that something you've witnessed on your farm? Um, because, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm aware of that mechanism, but we haven't witnessed it in Greece uh, when using fresh wood chips. And I'm wondering if, if you then saw that lack of um, nitrogen. Yeah, we, we, have, we haven't done much mulching over the years. When we have, we have tried to use chips that have been sitting in a pile probably for at least a year or so. But I think that it depends on what you're starting with in, in the soil. So if you have a soil that is already quite fertile and quite healthy and has lots of microbial activity in it, there might be plenty of um, plenty to go around, so to speak. Whereas if you're planting on a site that uh, is already limited perhaps in decomposers or macronutrients like nitrogen, adding a organic material there that 
may um, take away from what the, the young tree needs. So I think you, you, you can't generalize accurately because in some cases, I think using green chips or fresh chips may work perfectly fine. In other cases, it may not. And wood chips would just be one example, though, of a mulch that we could use for or like a compost type material that we could use for mulch. In Argentina, not on our ranch, but in some other areas that were adjacent to a large peanut shelling factory, we were using the peanut shells as the mulch and we were doing direct seedings into, um, we basically went through, made a, uh, a furrow, um, put the, seeds in that furrow, mostly nut species like oaks and walnuts and hickories. And then we went over and in that furrow laid a layer of, uh, it was probably somewhere between five and 10 centimeters in thickness. It wasn't that we were super accurate or consistent and those nuts thrived. The, like they came up through those peanut shells and grew wonderfully and that those peanut shells suppressed the weed growth for uh what i remember is in some cases up to three growing seasons wow so yeah that was a system that worked very well but it was flat ground it was it was loamy soil and Hmm. it was uh and we we didn't have any because this was all cropland before, I don't think we had the wildlife to contend with as much as we would in a, like a small farm field that might already be full of rodents that want to girdle young trees. But we were also planting at very high densities there too. So we were planting nuts at like almost a 50 centimeter to 100 centimeter spacing because we had lots of nuts. So I think we had so many trees per row that we we could afford to lose a significant percentage and still have plenty of trees per hectare. That's what I was going to ask, you know, because you, you said once your trees are established, the, the first thing you want to be thinking about is what's going to eat my tree now. And uh, what, what are the options then that you've put in, in place on your farm to try and protect those young trees? That's why to do it over again, Etienne, I think that I would plant the trees first and then let the trees get started and keep the keep the animals out until I felt the trees were at a stage that I could either graze it on a more regular basis or at least opportunistically go in and flash graze it at the, the right moments. Now in our ranch in Argentina, just because of the species that we're predominantly using, mostly pines, and the fact that we want to control the fuel loads in these young plantations, at the early stage possible, we have to push the envelope a little bit. And and we pay the cost for that to a small extent, not because the cattle really want to graze young pines, but because they will rub on these young pines and break the limbs off and girdle the bark if, if, if we're not careful about how long we leave them in there and when we put them in there and how quickly we move them from one spot to the next. The bigger issue here in New York, though, is not our grazing livestock, it's it's deer. And deer, again, are probably by far the largest herbivores that want to eat our young trees. And that's a challenge both in 
systems where we're using natural regeneration and situations where we're using artificial regeneration, that is tree planting. So I can easily keep my livestock out of young forest plantations. I can't keep deer out of young forest plantations as, as easily. And one thing that we're doing here today, we have a whole extension website dedicated to it, is building what we call slash walls. So slash, think of slash as logging debris. We're about to build our first brush walls where we're taking invasive shrubs and bulldozing them into large windrows around the perimeter of these areas where we want to plant young trees and using that as a like a natural organic barrier to exclude deer for five to 10 years long enough to, to either get the naturally occurring young trees up and running or trees that we plant in there up and running. And our experience is showing we've been building slash walls now in this area for five years. We can build them at a much lower cost per foot of fence or per foot of barrier than building a, a, a fence fence. Um, and to build a fence that'll keep deer out, it's a fairly significant fence. And the beauty is, though, we don't really have to maintain these slash walls. We can build them and pretty much walk away from them. And if a tree falls on them, it just makes them better. We don't have to, it's not like our eight to 10 foot high deer resistant fences that if a branch falls on them, it flattens the fence and the deer can walk right back in there again. Sorry, uh, you're talking about eight to 10 years for deer, but um, what would be the ideal time to exclude animals, including livestock from the young plantation? Again, is it, to graze as often as we want and for as long as we want? Or is it to just be able to go in there and graze a little bit here and a little bit there? So I think that you can probably in most cases be back to grazing a young plantation within two to three years after planting, but only if you're using very skillfully and well-controlled rotational grazing. This is not, so if you're going to put animals into a young plantation, that's not a situation where you want to have your newbie summer intern that doesn't really have the, the grazing skills yet be in charge of that because the intern is probably going to make the mistake of doing the same thing in that young plantation that you might be doing in other areas, either more mature civil pastures or pastures that don't have young, vulnerable trees, and it doesn't work the same way. We talked about earlier, but shorter durations, that is normally maybe you would leave your animals in there for a day. Maybe you can only leave them in there for a couple of hours. And putting animals in there either right before leaf out or right after leaf drop or putting animals in there, say, when you see a week of cooler weather where they might not be as heat stressed and being driven quite as crazy by biting flies like horn flies. So it's, it's understanding how your animals think and then being able to anticipate what could cause the animals to go in there and show destructive behavior or damaging behavior to those young trees. Other management inputs like pruning, 
ETN are going in and doing early what we think of as pre-commercial thinnings, that is thinning trees at a, a, a cost or a loss versus thinning weight, uh, delaying those thinnings till we can be harvesting something that's usable or sellable. All of those management activities may or may not be necessary. It depends partly on it depends partly on the the initial design and implementation of the the planting. It also depends on responding to unforeseen issues. So a common example here in New York is that sometimes we have late frosts that can damage young trees just as they're leafing out in mid-May and that kills the terminal growth in that young tree. And then you get side branches that start to, uh, and, you, and so what, what happens in that case, instead of having a nice straight single stem, you now have multiple stems. So you may have to go in and do some corrective pruning to retrain it to a single stem. When, when at all possible, we want to avoid those types of management activities because they cost money and it's not it's not just that they cost money they take time and that time is i feel the biggest limiting factor for all farmers today so we want to set this up in a way that it minimizes like we don't have to do things that are potentially avoidable things but if we're going to grow trees and our objectives is to have straight tall trees, then doing some pruning at some point may be necessary. We also prune, for example, we prune our pines in Argentina, not because we need to for timber quality or because the trees won't eventually prune themselves. Pines typically self prune very well. We just we want to get that those ladder fuels away from the ground as early as possible. So we typically go in when the trees are starting at around three meters tall, and we'll prune up the first meter and a half. In other words, the 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 lower half of the living branches on that tree, and that way, if a hot fast fire comes through, it's not uh, potentially jumping up and scorching the crowns of those young trees. You were saying uh, handling, for example, disease or pests. Um, is that a big time input? Well, those are the things that nature throws at us, and we just have to be prepared to respond the best that we can. So spraying trees for pests may be necessary. Watering trees or irrigating trees during drought may be necessary. We, we would like to try to re reduce or minimize the need for those things by starting with trees that are less vulnerable to pest issues or that <clears throat> may be less susceptible to drought stress. But you just you can't control those things. You can't control pest outbreaks. You can't control floods or droughts. You can't control hailstorms. So you just sometimes need to have you need to go in there and help correct damage or loss that's been done <clears throat> from some natural occurrence after the fact. 
maybe as a final uh, part to this um, episode, I'd really like to understand how you've managed to integrate um, living barns and coniferous tree plantations um, into the management of your animals. And you've mentioned uh, the benefits in terms of uh, shelter that they provide. Um, but did you actually plant those plantations with that in mind or is it, was it more an opportunistic use of them? Our living barns on our farm here in New York came about as an opportunistic use of these conifer plantations that we had planted a decade or more earlier at that time, not thinking about, okay, someday we're going to use these to provide shelter during extreme winter weather to our animals. We planted conifers in those spots because we wanted to have some more conifers on our farm and the conifer species that we chose for those sites seemed to be well adapted to those sites. We also felt that with the limited time and ability to care for young trees, that the conifers were going to be easier to establish than hardwoods. So our living barns were a after-the-fact use of plantations that we had planted years earlier. And in hindsight, though, I'm very glad that we did plant those conifer plantations. And I think that they've probably been one of our greatest assets across the entire farm or one of the greatest benefits out of our tree planting efforts because I just, first and foremost, I want my animals to be comfortable. And I think happy, comfortable animals perform better. They stay healthier. They create less headaches for me. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that <clears throat> livestock, particularly ruminant livestock with the fermentation in their rumens, they're able to generate enough heat to stay warm, but they definitely benefit from having some place that they can get out of the wind and the driving snow or freezing rain and uh, be more comfortable during those, those types of winter storms. Now, what I'm talking about is, is common during a winter here in upstate New York. It may not be as common during a winter in Greece, for example, or in central Argentina. Nonetheless, I, I'm sure you can think of examples where your animals would like to have some shelter from the extremes. And, and, and maybe it's not cold, maybe it's more heat. But to me, living barns is living barns is a concept that to me makes sense 10 times out of 10. I, I don't really see a downside to it when compared to the alternatives of having to build a roofed shelter and to build even a very minimal pole barn type structure here in New York, you're starting at a cost. And, and this is uh, pre-supply chain shortages. You would be looking at a minimum cost of probably $10 per square meter of roof shelter. And today it's probably closer to $20 per square meter. But then on top of that, it's a structure that we have to maintain over time. And here in New York, at least, agricultural buildings are only exempted from property taxes for 
the first 10 years. So every building that I build on the farm, I'm eventually paying taxes. And our taxes are very significant here on the value of that structure. So I see buildings as a asset that requires maintenance and depreciates over time. I see living barns, on the other hand, as a it, it requires some maintenance, or at least it requires some some care. We still want to go in there and thin the same way we would thin our woods for timber production or thin in our woods for civil pasture production because we want to reduce the competition amongst trees, take out the poor quality trees, and promote the growth of our better trees. But our living barns appreciate over time because these are trees that continue to grow bigger and more valuable. But in the living barns, our primary objective is creating good shelter for animals from winter storms. It's not necessarily trying to maximize the amount of forage that we're growing underneath. So in our living barns, we tend to use species or favor species in this thinning because these were all mixed coniferous plantations. We're favoring species that tend to have uh, denser foliage, denser canopies, so spruce and fir versus, say, pine and larch. And larch would be deciduous. Anyhow, it's not that we have thinned out all of the pine or all of the larch. We're just not favoring those as much as we do the more dense canopy conifer species. So when we use the term living barn, ATN, I think that uh, might create a false impression of like these are areas where we put the animals for the duration of the winter or we have them for extensive periods of time in the winter. That's not at all how we use our living bar- barns on our farm. So I said earlier that we have a little over 20 acres of living barn areas, but it's six different plantations that range from about half a hectare in size to about three hectares in size. And that, was, that wasn't something we planned 30 years ago. We, we, again, we weren't planting these trees as living barns. Today, I might make them perhaps a little bigger and design them a little differently, but we were utilizing what we had already put there in previous years to our planting efforts. We don't, um, what we, we try to do with our living barn areas is we, we put hay either in or adjacent to them so like we might put them on the down, downwind sides of these plantations. Most of our storms here come from the west or north. So we try to have hay on the, say, the south and the east side. But you, you don't always know. So we have storms called nor'easters where the wind, of course, comes out of the east. So in some of the living barns, we might put the hay on the west side or the north side. And we hold those areas in reserve until we really need them. So with our farm grazing across these 500 acres during the growing season in the winter, we might utilize half to two thirds of that total grazing base. Uh, That, by the way, is divided into about 120 permanent paddocks. We're rotationally bale grazing throughout the winter, but when the animals, when the weather is relatively mild, we can put the animals pretty much wherever we want. When the we look at the 10-day forecast and see that severe winter weather is coming, we start moving them in the direction of one of these living barns. And 
not all of our living barns are the same in terms of access to water or the drainage of the soil. So if it's going to be a kind of a short duration storm, we might be able to use one of the smaller living barns or one of the living barns that say is on a lower, wetter, heavier soil type, especially if we know that the ground is going to be frozen for the day or two or three that the animals are in there. And and then we have other living barns where if they need to ride it out for several days of bad weather, those living barn areas would be better suited. So it's not that we move the animals from one end of the farm to the other, just because this living barn might be a little better, but we have multiple options around the farm. So that's something that I would recommend if people are considering establishing living barns as well. First of all, don't wait because it'll take time for those trees to grow. So the best time to plant a tree was yesterday, right? Or 30 years ago, but it's never too late either. So, but think about having instead of just like one big living barn area where you're beating up on it um, more frequently, having multiple smaller living barn areas. These living barns really only need to be big enough that for whatever the size of your herd is or your flock is, that they can, most of the animals can get shelter for most of the time. And we lay in bed during a winter blizzard and think, oh, it's so miserable out there. My animals must be miserable too. Well, the animals are probably more comfortable than you think, but giving, allowing them or giving them access to these areas where they can get out of the wind a little bit, get their faces out of that driving uh, sleet like snow that just makes them, it, it's taking one, like we don't like to stand out there in a blizzard and get pelted in the face by hail like granular snow. So don't, our animals don't enjoy it either. And if they can just get out, it's, it's not even that it's necessarily keeping them dry, even though if they get under a fairly dense canopy of dense conifers, they're, they're probably going to get soaked much less. And in this, by the way, doesn't necessarily work with all livestock species like goats, for example. Goats, once they get soaked and they're subjected to cold temperatures, they're more vulnerable to things like pneumonia or respiratory diseases than sheep or cattle. But every little bit helps. So I think living barns is just a very practical and cost-effective way of where we can be using trees to meet one of the important needs of our animals versus having to build very expensive and high-maintenance roofed barns or sheds. But I feel like listening to you, it's quite important to be able to rotate between different areas and having multiple sites to avoid. Um, For example, I was thinking one of the, the things I would like to avoid is concentrating manure and one part of the farm where it's actually not needed and might even be detrimental. But actually by having this constant rotation and just including them for short amount of time at certain periods of the year, you're still able to distribute nutrients where you want them and avoid any damage to those areas either, I guess. Yeah. So to put it in context, you know, and here in upstate New York, it's, it's a, we have a real winter here. So we have six months 
potentially or more of winter weather, but of those six months, we may have six weeks where it's really feels like winter, meaning snow and really cold temperatures. And of those six weeks, we probably only have six days that our animals would seek out shelter if they had access to it. So it's not like we need to have our animals in or around these living barns all winter long, but there are certainly days every year where the animals, they could probably weather out these storms fine without the shelter. But again, the more happy and comfortable we can make our animals, the better that works for all of us. So these living barns, it's just taking something that is there or that we can pretty practically put there and using it for another important purpose, which is giving some refuge to our animals when they really need it. Thanks for listening to this episode. Uh, unfortunately, the end cut off with Brett, so you didn't get to hear our goodbyes. But um, I'm glad we could still get all the content we wanted. All the relevant links are below. Um, you can also suggest guests or give us some feedback uh, through social media or our website. Please consider supporting the podcast as well to make this sustainable in the long run. Thank you very much.